0: Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of On My Word Podcast. And today we've got a really special guest. Remember last week we spoke to Sherry Pink? Well, guess who we have now? We have our this! So we have Derek Taylor Kent is with us. Derek, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
0: We are very glad to have you and find out all about you and hear the other half of the story. Derek is an author of lots of different books. Let's find out. First of all, how did you get into all this? Like, I'm going to write a book. What age group did you start with? Etc. How did all this come about?
1: I've been writing children's books pretty seriously since I was about 15 years old. At that point in my life, I kind of became re-obsessed with Dr. Seuss. Like, I loved it when I was a little kid. I sort of became re-obsessed with him and hadn't read his complete library. I just kind of read everything he ever wrote and I was working with a creative writing teacher at school who was kind of helping me write in a similar style. I always loved writing poetry and things in lyrical verse and wordplay was like my favorite thing, just being funny with my writing. And so after really getting into it and absorbing myself in that, I really wanted to write my own children's picture book to start off with in a Dr. Seussian kind of style. So when I did that, when I was 15 years old in high school, I wrote this whole kind of series of picture books I, at the time, intended for my mom to illustrate, who was a professional artist, and this was kind of my main goal in life, like, working on these books for about almost over 10 years, I think. I wrote a whole bunch of them. They were way too long for picture books in retrospect. I was able to get an agent with them at first, but, like, no one bought it. It was way too long for picture books, and my mom couldn't get the illustrations done. It was kind of a, just an ongoing, arduous process was, I could never complete. And then when I was in my mid-twenties, I kind of I fell in love with something else called Harry Potter. And a kind of a light bulb went off in my head when I read those books. I was like, wait a second, that's what I need to be doing. Middle grade books that I don't need to rely on an illustrator for, where I can just be my own imagination. I really create my own worlds that way. I had a story in mind, I had a really cool title, which at the time was called Gary's School, My Homework Ate My Dog. It took me about two years to finish that first novel. From different editors I worked with, I really... Didn't know what I was doing much, I think, in terms of like writing my first novel. I'd written a whole bunch of picture books at that point, but not an actual novel. So that was a long learning process for me. But eventually, when I felt like it was in a good place, I did a real serious submission on it to agents and was able to get an interest from an agent from it. And they submitted it all over all the big publishers, and everybody passed on it. One person it. But I did have sort of one little nibble from an editor at HarperCollins who said, you know what, I like this idea, Scary School, but what you kind of wrote was something that's kind of dark and very Harry Potter-ish, very influenced by that, kind of like a dark fantasy. But that was kind of like more light funny, like the Scary School idea. Like if you could do something with that Scary School concept, but totally different. We think there could be something there. I was like, all right. Didn't want to let that go. So right after I had that feedback, I absolutely just completely focused on nothing but that and wrote a whole new novel called Scary School in about one month. Wow. <laughs> so once I had it, it was totally different story. Nothing really the same other than the title or just definitely the tone just light and funny, which was really more my wheelhouse. I'd always been a comedy writer my whole life growing up. i have been doing sketch comedy at Second City. I I put up all these musicals, different plays. I was always in the theater scene doing comedy and sketch comedies. i was like, why did I think of this before? It's doing a book that's totally humor driven, which is kind of like my line of gold, they call it, like what I always did the best with. So we sent it to my agent. My agent didn't actually like it as much as my other book. It wasn't as much of a story there as the other one. It was kind of more like a series of vignettes, like little short stories based around the theme of a scary themed school. But he agreed to send it to that one editor who had asked for it. And right after he sent it to, I think a week later, wrote back and said, oh, my gosh, this is perfect. It's exactly what we're looking for. And I had a three-book deal offer from Harper College that <laughs>
0: week. <laughs> that is amazing. So that was
1: about when I was almost 30 years old, working on this nonstop from when I was 15. Wow. So from there, yeah, things just kind of took off. I had a contract, I had to write books for them every year, new novels. They hired an amazing illustrator to do spot art on it. That took a good amount of time to do, but it was still like a long wait before the first books would come out. But I had a really nice advance, the biggest paycheck I'd ever seen for my writing. And then later on, my next book deal, I ended up doing a picture book called El Perro con Sombrero, based on my dog that I got around that time period. It's Spanish for the dog in the hat, of course and that ended up getting a bidding war my first between several publishers for that one Whoa. then I was kind of known for being middle grade and doing picture books especially bilingual English Spanish picture books that's kind of how it got launched and from there it's been a whole other story forming Whimsical World Publishing Company with Sherry of course and doing a whole another chapter of my writing career follow
0: up questions of the first chapter of the writing career at 15 that you started writing these picture books it was more about just being inspired by Dr. Seuss and wanted to kind of imitate Dr. Seuss versus we must write picture books for all children sort of like it came more from that angle
1: well my biggest strength was always my imagination i thought like that's kind of like what differentiated me from everyone else so these original picture books were just a completely it's kind of like wizard of oz meets lord of the rings it was a big kind of epic fantasy, but told in rhyming couplets in the Seussian style, you'd sit there and it'd take way too long to read them for each book. (laughs) Diction books nowadays are supposed to be like, you could read them in five minutes, and these would be more like 20 to 30 minute reads. So I can see in retrospect why the other publishers weren't keen on them, but at the time I didn't really understand. I was definitely kind of frustrated and thought it was just because we couldn't get the illustrations done, or they just didn't understand my vision for the series. It was really just an outlet for my imagination. I thought of it in a way I thought I could. I love building worlds and just creating really different kind of stories than you'd normally see in picture books. That was my original inspiration. And I just love lyrical verse in terms of just style-wise. And I still write that way. A lot of my books are told in that same Susie and Styles It's still just like been ingrained in my head ever since then.
0: Was there something specific that reignited the Dr. Seuss thing? Or you just randomly picked it up one day and you're like, oh yeah, this is it?
1: I think what happened was I actually started writing the book the first few pages, and I showed it to my creative writing teacher, and he saw that my rhythm and meter were all over the place. They were not solid. And so he guessed it. I read a, a few Dr. Seuss books to get an understanding of it. And everything kind of clicked when I realized it was all just, you da 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 that is a story that no one can beat. And to think that I saw <laughs> it on Mulberry Street. And it was just, oh, it was kind of like songwriting, where everything has, like, all the words and the stresses hit on a rhythm, and I kind of just, oh, so to, like, just to practice, I started writing in that rhythm for my books, and it just became a part of me. I could just almost speak in, a, in that rhythm if I wanted to. Just <laughs> speech.
0: That's great. Once you graduated school, after that, was writing a side thing for you or that was still like a main focus?
1: I went to UCLA School of Theater after high school and I was kind of doing both acting and playwriting. I actually was doing the graduate level program in playwriting as an undergrad because they kind of liked me and just let me audit all the <laughs> classes. <laughs> And I was continuously, I was writing more chapters of that epic series I told you about in college. I had a one-man show that was a children's book I brought to life called Michael Jordan's Magic Shoes that became kind of a hit at UCLA. I ended up kind of going on tour with around the city, different theaters. It was performing and writing, but to me, they were always intertwined. They were the same exact kind of thing coming from the same place for me and the desire to entertain people and make people laugh.
0: And then you got your agent, and then you did the scary school thing that your agent didn't appreciate the first time around. But once you got your deals and stuff, your agent came around to it, or was it like, I don't really get it, but I'm happy for you, you got a deal. Yeah, it was
1: very I know, it felt irreverent in most books. Your standard ABC kind of story with a main character, it was kind of a whole bunch of characters, a whole bunch of stories. So it was definitely something different, I think, than they were used to. But I remember my biggest inspiration for that was one of my favorite book series I read as a kid called Sideways Stories from Wayside School with Sashar, And those books actually are one of the first things that ignited a love and reading in me because they were so funny. Like, books that never made me laugh like that before. And they were just a series of short stories about a weird school. A weird-themed crazy school. I thought I could do that for a scary-themed school.
0: Well, and then apparently you did. Honestly, when you were describing it, I was going to ask, like, it sounds like those books. How... Funny. Well, there you go. Except you took it and you added in zombies and stuff, put all the like paranormal creatures into it.
1: Exactly. It's about a school where regular kids get to go to school with monster kids for the first time, like zombie kids, vampire kids, werewolf kids, and all the teachers are scary. T-Rexes or dragons who eat you if you don't follow the rules.
0: If the first book was kind of like a little bit more vignette style, so what you're just peeking into different classrooms and different students, is that kind of the structure? I think we're following different characters. Like
1: each chapter would focus on a different character. And sometimes as I worked with my editors there, they actually wanted more of a story, kind of a through line to go through it. In the editing process with my editors at HarperCollins, I added more story than there was. They were kind of building up to a big thing with all the students preparing for a big kind of a junior Olympic style event called the Ghoul Games, where they compete against all the other monster schools in different kinds of crazy monster games. And they were really fun to invent. But the only problem was they didn't like that the humans were being in in the Ghoul Games for the first time. So they had a rule where if the humans lost, (laughs) then the monsters got to eat them.
0: (laughs) And he's laughing about these things.
1: But the whole fun theme of the book is they get to become friends and they all come together despite what everyone is telling them that they get to know each other and end up becoming friends so they don't want to meet each other.
0: Okay. So the question is, you had two books that came after it. you're kind of following different characters, your next two books, did it stick with one character or was it still a similar style of seeing different characters?
1: It was following a group of main characters I had. There are about six main characters. We continue follow, and we add in new characters each book. So I kind of join in fun new characters each book.
0: It's a little bit like an ensemble cast style. Yes. Very good. Going to the picture book, you said that was bilingual? Yes. So how did that even happen? Let's just also define it for people listening. Bilingual means what? Every word is translated or some in some? What does that look like?
1: You have the line in English on top and the same line in Spanish right underneath it. So you can read the book in both languages.
0: Okay. We have three oh.
1: bilingual books so far. Oh. Yeah, it was just kind of a, a funny thing that came up one day where I was talking maybe about The Cat in the Hat, and a friend who spoke Spanish said, you know, and what's funny is that in Spanish, a dog version would be El Perro con Sombrero. So in Spanish, <laughs> the dog rhymes with dog in the hat, but in English, cat in the hat rhymes. <laughs> we thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so I just had that thing. A lot of times, it's just like a, a title like that will pop in my head. Same thing happened with Scary School. That title just popped in my head, Scary School, and kind of spark an inspiration for what the whole story could be. And so El Pedro con Sombrero, as soon as I heard it, I was like, that would be a fun book. Yeah. It's like cat in a hat, why not a dog in a hat? Then I, I got my dog and kind of, he definitely served as a major inspiration for it in his mischievous ways. It's about a, a homeless dog who lives on the street who doesn't have a family, but then a lucky sombrero lands on his head and turns his life around He becomes a movie star dog, but it's still sad because he doesn't have a family. So it's kind of about having that choice between family and fame that people really responded to. And it was so successful. It's been by far been my most successful book ever. Wow. And I think since it's released in 2015, it's been the best-selling, I think, bilingual book on the market and I found a sequel that came out in 2019, El Perro con Sombrero meets Los Gatos con Gelatos, The Cats with Ice Cream, and a crypt book, Doggy Claws, Perro Noel.
0: Did you write both languages or someone else did the Spanish part?
1: I studied Spanish in school. I could kind of come up with a rudimentary thing, and then I would have first language Spanish speakers read it and be like, oh no, fix a bunch of things. So I did have some help with the translators who made it kind of difficult because there's so many dialects. Right, this right. Mexican Spanish or Spanish. Spain Spanish or Central American Spanish it's all very different so you have to like really pick the phrasing will be different and having to like pick something that'll be very universal which I wouldn't necessarily know
0: well what is considered the more universal Spanish is there one that's more universal
1: I don't think so. There is some basic things with that dialects. Like, I was probably taught Spanish by someone who done more of a Mexican dialect. Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about it. Like, the translators would look at it and be like, okay, this would be the most basic Spanish versus a, a dialect phrasing of this thing.
0: Right. So, they,
1: okay. luckily they handled that.
0: Oh, yeah. But you basically did write the Spanish, but it just needed to be fixed, checked, etc., to make sure that you didn't, like, write something that was, like, what does this even say? Yes,
1: yeah, so I wouldn't take credit for it, because I, I'm sure they did a lot of jam- I'm not sure how much of what I wrote originally ended up in the final version.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. When you have this idea for the picture book and you come to your agent and you're like, hey, I got a picture book now. Was there any sort of reaction to you switching from middle grade over to picture book or doing something a slightly different style? Or was it just like, cool, let's just see who bites? I do
1: think that they prefer that authors stick to one style because that's how you can really build an audience. For me, I just didn't interest me. Like, I I have to follow my inspiration. So I do stuff for all age groups. I've done baby board books, beginning counting books, a whole bunch of picture books. I think I've done up seven, eight, eight middle grade books now, ages, let's say, seven to 12, and even the grown-up books. I've had a a puzzle mystery thriller for the grown-up audience, too. It's just, I have to go with what I'm inspired to write with at a time, I Just, it's hard to actually sit down and have the motivation to write
0: if I'm not inspired. Yeah, that's so true. And like a puzzle mystery thriller thing sounds like a very different category. Because even your picture book and your middle grade, we've heard so far, they still have comedic elements. So they're still kind of fun. But it doesn't sound like puzzle... Thriller could be fun, but like a different kind. It's not comedy fun. It's like a different kind of fun. Were you reading a lot of thrills at the time that it came up? As
1: usual, I read something that really speaks to me and inspires me. And then I want to write something like it. (laughs) So my middle grade was Harry Potter. And with my puzzle thriller, it was Ready Player One. And I'd also been really into the Dan Brown books. I just, I thought they were a lot of fun. I liked those like conspiracy thrillers. But also adding in so much art history in Mm -hmm. there. was like, it's really like, that's the whole fun and games of those Dan Brown books. It's actually learning about art history and architecture somehow making it fun yeah yeah <laughs> With Ready Player One, it was 80s pop culture. It's kind of like creating a fun puzzle thriller based around 80s pop culture. I was reading, it, like, man, what would I write about if I were to write a puzzle adventure novel based on like my biggest passion? Immediately came to me, which was Stanley Kubrick. I have been obsessed <laughs> with filmmaker Stanley Kubrick since I was 14 years old. And there's already so much cool symbolism and mystery and conspiracy theories around his movies already there. So I thought it'd be so fun to weave all of those into a fun story story the idea that he created a hidden puzzles within his movies that are leading to a mysterious treasure that he seems to have left behind for the sharp viewers so that one I was lucky enough to actually speak with Ernest Klein a few times, the Mm -hmm. writer of Ready Player One. I met him at a book signing and became a little bit of pen pal, he to like, write to him, asking him some things about it, and he actually recommended his editor to me, which was really nice of him. Yeah. And a passing on it, but I found another publisher, which is something, a new kind of thing we had, which was a a hybrid publisher. That game was my first foray into hybrid publishing, where it's kind of a little bit similar to a traditional publisher, but also has a lot of elements of self-publishing to it also but they've done a lot of great things and they specialized in thrillers so it ended up being a good match with them called evolves publishing
0: so are you still doing each kind you still send stuff to your agent plus you've got whimsical world stuff that you publish plus hybrid publishing or have you shifted your focus since then
1: once whimsical world took off the hybrid publishing didn't make as much sense because yep. the way it kind of works is with a traditional publisher, the royalties might be lucky if they're 10% on a book. So the hybrid publisher will give you around maybe 70 to 80% of the royalties, mm-hmm. but you don't get the advance that you would with a traditional publisher. So that's kind of the trade-off. With Whimsical World, I can publish it myself and still get the same, if not more, sales with a hybrid publisher for the books I write for them the thriller made a lot of sense with them because they had a whole library of thrillers that had a track record so thriller readers would go to them to see what books they published next for that genre made a lot of sense but they don't really specialize in children's books it doesn't make a lot of sense to give them my children's books and give them a 20 percent of them when I can just get the same sales myself and keep the 20 percent.
0: yeah do you still also sometimes traditionally publish or everything's now in the whimsical world
1: Yeah, most things are through Whimsical World. I will send my agent manuscripts sometimes that I think are right. I feel like it depends on the offer. It would kind of be like, I'll send up the book, and if it's an amazing offer that makes sense for us, it might be the best decision to go with a publisher for certain types of books. And if they end up passing, I can just publish it through our own company anyway. So it's like kind of a no go situation. And I'll probably end up making a lot more through our company anyway because we're keeping 100% of the sales. <laughs> as you know, you'll get a little advance up front, and then two years later, the book comes out, you get a little bit more money. And economically, it just seemed to make more sense to do things through our publisher as long as we're able to do our book events that generate so much sales, which was very difficult during the pandemic, but uh, seems to be picking up again.
0: Yeah. Just to backtrack a second, you had said something originally that The Scary School and then someone did spot art for that. So just to explain what that is for the listeners, what does that mean that someone did spot art for it?
1: Spot art would be pen and ink, black and white drawings that you'll find in novels, because most of them is way too expensive to do full-color illustrations in novel-like books. If you pick up any middle-grade books, sometimes you'll see just random illustrations. It'll be like one or two illustrations per chapter, for instance, where it's just a pen and ink drawing. That would be spot art. But then there's graphic novels, which I'm, I had one just come out my newest book kind of similar to what would be like wimpy kid captain underpants where they're kind of hybrids between comic books and chapter books
0: you said that you switched over to novel and it was very different than a picture book because you weren't necessarily i want to say relying on well you didn't have to worry about the illustrations or people getting it right but when you did see the first illustrations, this first kind of sketches for the art was it just like oh my goodness they got it or was it just like oh i didn't think about this this is really cool
1: for Scary School, they had one of the best artists in the entire world to do hmm. the art for it. The cover art and the spot art named Scott Fisher. And so I was blown away by wow. what he was able to do. I mean, I wanted to use it for all my next books, but he is way too expensive. He's so good. <laughs> He's just incredible. So I was just kind of blown away by everything he did. I had very little need for input from me, other than maybe some like tweaks to characters the way I, I had imagined them. But very minor things, if anything.
0: So he did all the Scary School books? He
1: did one, two, and three, and then I did a fourth one, which I released through Whimsical World, which I did get a, a different illustrator for that. Not quite Scott's style, but something similar to it. I had a different cover artist, a spot artist inside. You could tell it's a different style inside for sure, but they was able to get the, the look that the other illustrator created. They're able to match pretty well.
0: Well, because you still want it to seem like it's the same series, so... <laughs>
1: Yeah, you still need to be able to recognize the characters. Like, that was the important thing.
0: Exactly. Random question, only because you mentioned Stanley Kubrick. I don't want to say what your top three films are, but if he comes up in a conversation, what's the first three films you mention?
1: 2001 is my favorite movie ever. That would be number one for sure. It's kind of his big three where my top favorites are, you know, Doctor Strange Love and Clockwork Orange. Kind of my big three. But I also love The Shining. I even learned to appreciate Eyes Wide Shut more. I watched it. <laughs> it's, it's such great things to appreciate in all of them. Do you but, have
0: favorites? I'm trying to remember everything that I've seen from him. And I don't know if I'm mixing up films that I think are his or not. Clockwork Orange, I know... The Space Odyssey one, I don't know if I ever watched it. Maybe I sat down to watch it and then I stopped, which I think is like heresy to anybody who's ever seen it. What do you mean you didn't finish the film? But I don't think I did. (laughs) It's
1: not too surprising. I don't call it an easy watch. That's what I love about it, though. It's not like watching most movies where you're sitting down and being entertained. It's kind of like really forcing you to sit and intellectually interact with it and analyze it as you're going along in order to appreciate it. It's not passive viewing like most movies are a lot of it's slow, quiet. It's like going to a museum and looking at a painting and having to like really examine it and Think about how it's making you feel and what it's making you think about it's a very different type of movie watching experience than almost any other movie they make nowadays because of that it takes several times of viewing it before most people can start to pick up on things and start to appreciate it on a deeper level that's what i kind of think that i love about it and got to see it on the big screen a couple times which i think also helps it's hard when it's so big and epic that seeing it on tv it's kind of makes it a little bit more difficult to watch
0: well, maybe I would have had this prep.
1: Kubrick's most recent films were The Shining, The Full Metal Jacket, and then Eyes Wide Shut. Full Metal
0: Jacket, yes, I saw that. Oh, I didn't realize that was him. <laughs> I've seen more than I realized, look at that.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have seen, he co- directed Spartacus, that wasn't really his script, he kind of was a director for hire on that one.
0: I've seen Spartacus, yes.
1: And Paths of Glory, Lolita, I'm just naming
0: all of them. It's funny because when you pick up a book, the author's name is right there, you totally see what it is, whether or not you remember the author's name, whatever, but it's so evident. But you can watch a film and not have a clue of any of the people who are in the film. Even though they used to be very good about always showing names first, right now they don't necessarily do it, they kind of kick the names to the back. But it's like, oh, I didn't know that was him. Uh Oh, look at that. I guess it kind of fits your style also. It's like slightly odd. It gives it that uniqueness kind of.
1: Yeah, I brought a lot of my fake humor sensibilities to the book. In a way, I kind of thought of it as a minor parody of Dan Brown books. (laughs) In its essence, it's just such a silly concept of it being life-threatening stakes over this silly movie-themed treasure hunt. <laughs> I, I thought it was the one that you were in it.
0: Okay, yeah, that is kind of funny. When you describe it like that, you're like, I have to prep for this book, so I have to go and watch all of this films now to make sure I get whatever scenes I want to reference down perfectly.
1: It was a year and a half of solid full-time research before even starting to write the book. I have a massive binder that looks like it's as thick as a phone book. Research, I For this book, I went into it. It was the most intense project I've ever done.
0: Did you already kind of know where you were going to go with the book? Or was just you had the general idea and you're like, well, I better start watching these films to figure out what kind of mystery I could set up with it?
1: What's cool is that I actually got to work with consultants on this book. People who create treasure hunts and puzzles for a living. These guys who do this thing called Fantastic Race, which are these massive citywide scavenger hunts in different cities all over America. And they also are hired by the movie studios when they need like cool puzzles and movies and things. Since I'm not like a puzzle designer myself, myself I really wanted to have that I had to have them be amazing so I actually worked with them to help create a lot of the puzzles in the books some of them I came up with myself and I worked with them on it to really perfect them this one was kind of a collaboration and they actually ended up becoming characters in the book itself which is really cool
0: that is so cool (laughs) in the puzzle making process and collaborating with them what's something that was like oh I didn't realize you have to do this when you're building a puzzle was there something like that that came up
1: Hmm. it was a long time ago (laughs) I wrote this back in
0: 2016 Uh, Oh, yeah, many moons ago. I will have to think back. What was
1: great is the main guy I was working with on it was just as big a Kubrick fanatic as me. We were just speaking the same language the entire time, and he found things in the movies I never would have thought to look. I had kind of a road map that I gave him that we needed to follow to get from point A to point B and I was trying to uncover certain long-standing mysteries and give explanations about some of the things that people have been arguing about about his movie forever, about what different things mean. And we were able to just come up with all the most amazing things that fit together, like the most perfect puzzle. It was incredible. And he would see a little detail in a movie that solved a puzzle that I never would have seen, like that connected one movie to another one. And I was like, oh my God, I was just mind-blown is the biggest understatement of the year. Uh, oh. And what's amazing is, even more so than a regular book, it's gotten the most notoriety as an audiobook. Jonathan Frakes ended up narrating the book, and Yvette Nicole Brown played a character all as well for the audiobook. Two are like pop culture icons. Jonathan yeah. Frakes from Back Next Generation, and Yvette Nicole Brown is just like pop culture icon now, and was most famous for being on Community at the time. Yeah. They ended up winning Best Fiction Audiobook of the Year when it came out, the reader's favorite Awards. I got to work with them. I actually produced the audiobook. I love doing audiobook production too. I love, love sound design. and a thing I just always loved. So I love producing, and creating my own audiobooks. I so get to work with them in the creation of it. Uh, so if anyone loves audiobooks out there, I highly recommend the audiobook version of it. I
0: don't think we said what the title of the book is. What's the title of the book? Kubrick's Game. Oh, there you go. I never even thought about that. That obviously, there's people who design puzzles. Like obviously. Mm-hmm. Wow. Did you have to do also a deep dive into fan forums and all that sort of stuff? Get all the like, conspiracy theories that other fans have spoken about and see what you want to use or build upon?
1: I gathered most of them through my research. <laughs> it was a pretty popular subject at the time. The movie Room 237 had just come out, which was all about hidden meanings just of The Shining. I was glad I had that because I could steer away from all the things he talked about in that movie when I was doing my own theories about it.
0: That actually sounds like so intense, but so much fun at the same time to build a puzzle like that. Wow. (laughs) Well, just because, I mean, just for a couple minutes, let's just do, in case anybody for some reason hasn't listened to the interview we did with Sherry, just a little recap a little bit about what Whimsical World is and a line or two about how that started, just to describe that, what a lot of your work is now.
1: So I met Sherry at a school visit we both were invited to by a a co-author, a friend who was also an author that we shared. Uh, So we met uh, kind of in our element, just as two authors at this school uh, doing shows for the kids and then doing book signings afterwards. Uh, And then through several fortuitous meetups later at the Orange County Children's Book Festival and at San Diego Comic-Con. A few months after that, we started dating. And what was amazing was, of course, we fell in love and ended up getting married. And then we kind of combined all of our books and imaginations together to form a whole new company called Whimsical World. Her company was already called the Whimsical World of Sherry Fink. She was an absolute rock star in the self-publishing world. Couldn't even really call it self-publishing because it was more of like a successful entrepreneurial business. So we kind of more called it just independent publishing because she was doing it just as good as the big publishers were if not better so i learned so much from her and how she was running her business and doing plans i didn't know you could really do that before so once i learned about all that from her and we started doing events together where we'd share a booth and like as our libraries grew and grew and our vision for the company grew we created uh, officially created the company uh, and now we have just a solid plan that goes even five years out of all our titles we're going to have coming out when and sticking to our mission, which is to inspire delight and educate children of all ages while planting seeds of self-esteem and high achievement. And we do that through our books, through magical live events school visits whimsical merchandise uh, speaking events and even mentoring uh, authors who are looking to create their author businesses
0: and so you'll collaborate on a bunch of works but also work on your own independent projects at the same time
1: books we've collaborated on or the counting book was our first one called counting sea life with the little seahorse oh i saw that one we did, a, yeah. we did a coloring book together that kind of just combines all of the coloring pages of all of our books and other than that like we'll the collaboration so we'll still like write our own books but then we collaborate on the marketing plan for the books and how we're gonna launch it help each other edit the books too so it's working together while still kind of also writing our own books because we do have different styles that we write in like her books are more geared towards social emotional learning and Books are more geared toward humor and STEM learning.
0: The whimsical world books might be written by either one of you. Everything that comes after that of getting the book out is where the collaboration is. Yes. Okay, now here's the other question. Who's writing the rom-com about these two authors who met at a school visit? And then when you say fortuitous meetings, was it? Did you know she was going to be in those places when you showed up there? So who's writing the rom-com is what I want to know.
1: You're right. I, it was all <laughs> That is a good idea, though.
0: I hadn't thought of it. Oh, you're welcome.
1: <laughs> it seems so mundane to us. What are you talking about?
0: You might have to remove yourselves from the story and, you know, like, rename the I characters. So. <laughs> we're Wrong come, an autobiography or something. <laughs> Whenever it comes out, I look forward to reading it. Okay, we'll, we'll definitely do okay. it. <laughs> yeah, right. You're like, oh good, now we'll write it. We'll
1: get it on the Hallmark Channel.
0: Oh, you know, that's what you gotta do. You gotta set it around the holiday times.
1: That's uh, right.
0: This has been a very productive interview. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With that said, though, okay, so we, I'm not giving up hope, but let's do our regular wrap-up of... I really like it when, and then writers, editors, publishers, book covers, stories, librarians, book events, whatever. Choosing anything story related, choosing one thing, I really like it when, and then choosing any one of those things, I really don't like when. How would you complete those sentences? I
1: really love it when parents will write to me after they bought a book for their kids and tell me that their kid... Had the hardest time reading before and just didn't like it, could never find a book they liked. But ever since they read your book, now I can't get them to stop reading. That's kind of the thing that makes it everything worthwhile that we do. I feel like what I love the most about what I do is when I get to read letters or emails like that, or how I hear about how it inspired the kid to write, become an author themselves and how they've written their own book. 'Cause they wanted to you can't be a storyteller or have a write a scary book like mine. Those are the best things about it, I think.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: What uh, don't I like? <laughs> Boy, I don't like when I discover I've made a mistake in one of my books and I didn't catch it during the editing process.
0: Yes! <laughs> Why does that People happen?
1: It a lot. Like in my book Doggy Claws, I remember there's a page you'll find on there where the dog just doesn't have a tail. I <laughs> just no forgot to put it in. And he's like, that bothers me every time I see it now. In the chapter book, you can definitely find some typos and they will drive me insane. And I have to like, go back and remember that's what when we do the second printing comes down and go back and fix it before the next printing. In the counting book, you were teaching kids how to count, literally, and, like, they have to count 13 seals, and there were literally 12 seals on the page. Like, Uh we messed up job number one here. We didn't catch the (laughs) illustrator. forgot to put in one of the seals. And we have to go back. We literally had to print out a thousand stickers. Of the seal, and every single book we'd go in and put the sticker on it so it, if the numbers matched the oh. words.
0: What When did you see that the seal was missing? Did someone tell you that? That you already started selling yeah, it?
1: Someone had to tell us, like a parent had to write to us and be like, you know, I can't find <laughs> that 13th seal. I'm like, <laughs> no, it <you> already <laughs> doesn't print me. It was like God Conn went around here going, getting all of our books all thousands of the books that we did our first printing on getting these stickers made quickly before the next book of Exolated mess out
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: Get more angry <laughs>
0: I'm glad you're laughing about it now. I'm glad at least for a picture book you could put a colored sticker on it. You can't necessarily yeah. do that for.
1: Uh, <laughs> Lesson learned shows you how detail oriented you have to be in the editing process because it is real easy for those things to happen.
0: Yeah, well, you probably also looked at the book four thousand times before it went out, also, and it's like it still happens.
1: Yeah, the problem is when you're going back and forth in the illustrations and giving notes, they're working with different files each time and moving things around. So, like, it may have been there in one iteration, and the next iteration is gone, and you don't expect to look for it again, like, the first time it was there. The second time, it's gone. That's the time of the process when you're doing these illustrations, Is things like that you before something changed the next time without you knowing.
0: Those are the words to the wise that we'll end up with. Derek, thank you so much for joining me today. It was been a lot of fun speaking with you. Thanks, you too. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Derek Taylor Kitt. To find out more about Derek and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at oh My Word podcast. But check us out at eltanbaum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.